First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, and you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13, 2 Samuel 13. Over the last year or so, we have been walking verse by verse through the books of Samuel, and right now we're in the life story of one of the most important characters in all the Bible, uh, King David. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, really what is the lowest point in King David's life when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered to try to cover his tracks. Last week, we saw how the Lord confronted David in his sin. And we saw how the Lord was gracious to forgive David because there is no sin, no matter how ugly our sin might be, that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse and forgive. But one of the things we talked about last week is that just because the Lord is gracious to forgive our sin does not mean that there will be no ongoing consequences for our sin in our life. In fact, God told David that even though he forgave him, that there would be consequences in his life because of his sin. The first of those that he experienced was the death of the child that he had conceived with Bathsheba, but God said that was only the beginning. In fact, this is what God said to David in chapter 12, verse 10. He said, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God said, David, because you have used the sword, because you've killed someone with the sword, the sword is never going to part, depart from your house. There's going to be violence in your own family and household. And what we're going to read today in 2 Samuel 13 is just the ugly beginning of this word from God coming to pass in David's house. Let's read the first part of this story as we get started. 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1, and for now we'll read down to verse 22. The Word of God says this, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I might eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. 
And she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his side, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. They all went out from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom, that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where can I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed. This evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her head. And laid her hand on her head and went away, crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Father, we bow before you with this story before us from your word. We pray, God, that you would speak to each of our hearts. Father, you know where we have been. Lord, you know the things that each of us have experienced in our life. And you know the word that we need to hear from you today. So God, would you speak and would you give us ears to hear you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in all my years uh, growing up in uh, church, being um, in, in Sunday school as a child, I am pretty sure I never heard this story. Um, I heard the story of Jonah and the big fish many times. Uh, the story of Noah and the ark many, many times, but never once did I hear this story, and there's probably a reason for that. And I think that if we're being honest, if most of us in this room were in charge of deciding which stories went into the Bible and which ones didn't, for most of us, this story would not have made the cut. We would have wanted to leave this story out. It is too ugly, it is too detailed, it makes us too uncomfortable, and yet, church, there is a reason why God in all his wisdom has included this story in his perfect word. In fact, in our culture today, this story may be a lot more applicable than we want to admit. 
Because this story, like perhaps none other in the Bible, tackles head-on the subject of sexual abuse. And it seems like in our culture, especially over the last few years, that this subject of abuse shows up in every sector, every part of society. We hear about it in Hollywood. We've heard about it in these past years in Washington, D.C. We've seen it and read stories about it in the Boy Scouts. We have heard about it for years now in the Roman Catholic Church. Unless we think somehow that this could only happen in the Catholic Church, even in this past year, stories have emerged of abuse in evangelical churches, even Southern Baptist churches as well. And so we should not think that this is someone else's problem that we don't have to think about or give attention to. Now, this is something we all need to think about. If there's any place where a person should feel safe from harm, it should be in the house of God. Almost certainly. There are some of you in this room for whom this subject is not a hypothetical. But that at some point in your life, you have been touched by abuse whether it be physically or sexually or emotionally, you have been abused. I'm praying especially for you today. That no matter how long ago that event might have been in the past or whether it is ongoing in the present, that the Lord would take his word and use it in your life in a profound way today. That you would be pointed to the hope that is available in Jesus Christ. There are four characters that we can learn from in this story. I believe that each of these four characters has something important to teach us. In fact, I think based off of each of these four characters, there is an action that the Lord would have us to take. And so first off, from the character of Amnon, I believe the Lord would want us to be horrified by the sin of abuse. And we should be horrified when we think about it, when we think about how abuse can, in a matter of mere minutes, shatter the life of everyone that it touches. The first person that's introduced to us in verse 1 is actually Absalom. Because this is the beginning of Absalom's story, which will take the next several chapters for us to read about. But here we're told that Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar, and he has a not-so-beautiful half-brother named Amnon, who's actually David's oldest son and is heir apparent to his throne. And Amnon has developed a perverse crush on his half-sister, Tamar. He is lovesick for her, so to speak. He cannot stop thinking about her, and he gets to the point where he is not even eating anymore, and people begin to notice his haggard appearance. But notice the way that verse 2 is 
is phrased. It says, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick for she was a virgin and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now that's, that's actually pretty troubling. Because when you truly love someone, you're thinking about what you can do for them, but he was distraught, the text says, because he could not do anything to her. This is not actually love at all, is it? This is unbridled and ungodly lust. What Amnon needed at this particular juncture in his life was a godly friend who would give him a proverbial, or maybe a not-so-proverbial, slap in the face and wake him up. But unfortunately, it's not a godly friend that he meets. It's a very crafty man named Jonadab, who is actually his cousin, And cousin Jonadab doesn't correct Amnon at all. Instead, he gives Amnon a plan through which he can get some alone time with Tamar. He tells him to do what a a second grade child might do to get out of a day of going to school. To pretend to be sick. And then when his dad comes to check on him, to ask him if he would send his sister Tamar to him to make him some comfort food. And so in verse 6... Amnon carries out the plan, just like his cousin told him. He pretends to be sick. David, his father, the king, comes to see him. And he says, oh, dad, I'm so sick. Please send my sister Tamar to me to make some food for me. And David doesn't suspect anything. And so he sends for Tamar. And Tamar obediently follows the command of her father and goes to her half-brother. And the story is told in such a vivid way. And Tamar is there, apparently in some kind of adjoining room, cooking and preparing the food. And Amnon is laying on her bed, his bed watching her. And, and then when she's finished, she brings in these little get-well cakes on a pan and lays them there beside his bed. But now he pretends to be too sick to even take one of them and eat them. And so he sends everybody else out of the area. And then he calls for his sister to come back into the inner bedroom again so that he can, quote, eat from her hand. In hindsight, it seems a little shady, but how could Tamar have possibly known what Amnon had in mind? Verse 11 says that as soon as she got close enough, the trap was sprung, and he he took hold of her. Strong language. It means he grabbed her, and he wouldn't let her go. And he said to her, come and lie with me, my sister. And as Amnon's hands wrapped around her wrist, Tamar's response was immediate and it was forceful. Look at what she said in verse 12. She said, no, my brother, do not force me for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. The word disgraceful thing can also be translated outrageous thing. And it was outrageous. In God's word, any sex outside of a covenant marriage relationship is sinful. But this was more than that. This was incest and this was rape. And Tamar was right. It was morally outrageous. And then somehow in this moment, Tamar is able to keep her head enough to to try to reason with Amnon. She gives him several reasons for why he should not do this thing. First, she says, think about me. Where where could I take my shame? 
Then she says, if you won't think about me, think about yourself. If you go through with this, you will be seen, she says, as one of the fools in Israel. The word fool doesn't just mean a stupid person or an unwise person. It means a godless person. She says, you would be seen as a godless person because what you're about to do is a godless thing to do. And then last of all, she says, just go and ask our father, ask the king. He won't keep me back from you if you really want to marry me. Now, I don't actually think for a second that she wanted to marry Amnon. I don't really even believe that she thought King David would break God's law and allow this marriage to take place. But at this point, understandably, she's trying anything and everything to get out of this terrifying situation. But Amnon would not listen to her. He would not ask his father for her hand in marriage. He would not wait. He would not reconsider. His sexual desires needed to be met immediately. And so in verse 14, in just a few brief words, we read about this terrible act itself. It says, however, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. And what Amnon did to Tamar was, was horrible. But if only there was just one Amnon and one Tamar in the history of the world. But we know that this story has been played out again thousands and thousands of times in various ways and in various places throughout human history. And though not always, oftentimes it is men who, like Amnon, are physically stronger, who misuse that strength to abuse and hurt and take advantage of those that they have been called upon to defend and protect. Certainly there is hope for modern-day Amnons. Because there is hope for all of us at the cross. But with that said, we should all be horrified by a sin like this. And we should be horrified because of what abuse does to its victims. Because it's horrifying. One, one commentator put it so powerfully, terror takes a second or two, but in ten minutes, Tamar's whole life lay in tatters. And it's Tamar that we need to think about next. We need to do what Amnon would not do. We need to listen to her. Because not only do we need to be horrified by the sin of abuse, but we need to hear the voice of the abused. And I've said before that I'm, I'm confident that in a room this size, that there are some who have been touched by abuse. Whether as a child, or as a teenager, or as an adult. Perhaps that abuse was very much like what Tamar experienced in this story. Perhaps it was rape, or some other form of sexual abuse. Maybe it was physical abuse. Someone who was stronger than you. Who has hit you and hurt you, maybe with some form of, of an emotional abuse, someone who has demeaned you, constantly putting you down, tearing you apart little by little and word by word. Again, I don't know if that's something that has happened in your life in the distant past, or heaven forbid, if that's something that's going on in your life right now. 
This is a day-by-day reality for you. I, I hope no matter the situation that you, that you will hear me, no matter what that person told you, no matter whether they told you that you deserved it or that somehow it was your fault, I hope you will hear it was not your fault. I hope you will hear that you did not deserve it. That it was not right. That what happened to you was evil. That it was the evil act of a sinful person. But I hope you will hear that your God loves you. And that you are precious in his sight. Maybe you're wondering, well, what do I do now? How do I respond if something like this has happened to me or is happening to me? There's, there's a lot that I would say in response to that, but I, I think that it, it starts with simply talking with someone that you trust. And, and, and I hope that in our church family there would be someone here that you would trust, whether a pastor, whether your small group leader, whether, whether a friend. I know that can be scary. You might think, well, you know, what if they don't believe me? What if they, what if they look at me differently? What if, what if they think I can't serve anymore? I can't be used anymore? The church is a family. We're here to bear each other's burdens. We're here to lift each other up. And if there's anywhere... Again, that should be a safe place to do that. It should be in the house of God where we remind each other that no matter what wounds we might have, that we have a Savior who was wounded. In fact, we have a Savior who even right now has wounds in His hands and in His side and in His feet. And we can bring our wounds to Him. Maybe you would rather talk to a trained Christian counselor about some of the things that you have you have experience. I'm going to put a website of a group of counselors that we often use on the screen behind me. Take a minute. Write that website down if you believe that that would be a helpful step for you. But it's important that if you've experienced something like this, that you would find a, a safe place to share it. Often that's the first step. It allows the healing process to begin. You know, you know in Tamar's case, the, the nightmare that happened in verse 14 wasn't even the end of her suffering. Because look at how Amnon treats her immediately afterwards in verse 15. It says, Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. Earlier he talked about how much he loved her. Now his love turns to hatred and he treats her like nothing more than a piece of trash to be discarded. It's, he's, he's repulsed by her now. Just the sight of her reminds him of what he had just done. He wants nothing to do with her. All he says to her is get up and get out. And rightfully, in verse 16, she, she protests that. She says, no, this, this evil that you're doing to me now is even worse than what you just did. 
Because in that culture, according to God's law, Amnon now had a responsibility to care for Tamar, to provide for her, and yet he was abdicating that by sending her away. So the servant that he had sent out of the room, now he calls him back into the room and tells him to put this woman out. And in fact, in the Hebrew, the word woman isn't even there. He just says, put this out. And they bolt the door behind her. And as one person put it, Tamar knew that as that door was bolted behind her, in her culture, the prospects for her being married and having children, that that door was bolted shut as well. And so you can just see her as she goes out into the streets and she takes that robe of many colors that she had been wearing, the robe that marked her off as a virgin daughter of the king of Israel, and she takes that robe and she rips it because she no longer had that status. And she puts ashes on her head and she weeps bitterly. And though she goes to live in the house of her brother Absalom, it's it's as though she feels that effectively her life was over, that everything she dreamed that her life was going to be now was not a possibility, that it had all been taken from her in one afternoon by one wicked man. And friend, maybe that's how you feel. Maybe someone who has hurt you and someone who who has done something to you that you feel has, has robbed you from everything that is meaningful in your life, everything that you dreamed would come about. And there are things, of course, that people can take from us in this life. But I hope you will hear there are also things that nobody can take from us in this life. That that nobody can take from you the fact that you are a person created in the image of your God, that you have been given incredible dignity and worth. That nobody can take away from you the fact that you are loved by God so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. No one can take from you the fact that if you know Jesus, that Jesus Christ, the very Son of glory, lives inside of you. No one can take from you that if you know him, you are a son or a daughter of the King. Nobody can take from you that you have a promise that one day you will live in an eternal home with your God who loved you and died for you. No one can take from you God's plan to use your life, even with its scars and its wounds, to bring glory to him and to bring blessing to others. No one can take any of that from you because all of that was given to you by a God who is far more powerful than the person who hurts you. There's a third character in this story we need to think about and learn from, and that's David. From him, we need to learn to help the abused find justice and healing, which is precisely what David does not do. Which I want you to look with me at verse 21. It says, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Well, that's good. He should have been very angry. should have been very angry about what his oldest son had just done to one of his daughters. It's good that he was angry. The problem is that's all he was. He was angry. If you read on in this story, there is no record that King David, as the supreme judge of the land, does anything about what just happened. 
That there's no record of him going to his daughter and comforting his daughter. There is no record of him doing anything with Amnon at all. Doesn't kick him out of the house. That doesn't do anything. Doesn't banish him. Does absolutely nothing. This is how David shows up in this story. The one who did not act. J.D. Greer said it like this. David, who once stood up to the giant Goliath, here does nothing to avenge his little girl. Now, Some people will say, well, David, David couldn't do anything about it because David had sinned in a very similar way to the sin that his son had just committed, and so he had lost the moral authority to act in this situation. And be that as it may, it does not absolve David of the responsibility of his office to act. He did nothing when he should have done something. And there's a lot of application in this, more than we have time to discuss, but I'll just mention two. First of all, there's an application here for Christian fathers. David is now the third, at least the third father in this story, who is passive when it comes to his sons and does not restrain his sons. All the way back to 1 Samuel, Eli And Samuel himself are guilty of this. And now here is David also guilty of being passive when he should be active. And as Christian fathers, many of us are falling into that same pattern of being passive when we should be active, of doing nothing when we should do something. And and we should do something in precisely this area of doing all we can to raise up our sons and raise up young men the right way to treat and honor the women who are in their lives. One person said this, that when our young men grow up and get married and they hear the Apostle Paul telling them in Ephesians 5 to cherish and love their wives, that should be the culmination of a lifetime of treating the women in their life with love and respect. That's only going to happen as we as fathers teach them and model for them what that should look like. So there's an application for fathers here, but there's also an application for institutions in general and churches in particular. That that we need to, unlike what David did here, we need to take action to help victims of abuse to find healing and, if possible, justice. Look at this verse in Proverbs chapter 31. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. That is what we're all called to do, but it's something that the church is called to do. To be proactive. While no church, and I hope you hear this, while no church can can make it so that no evil ever happens within its walls, we need to do everything in our power to make the church a safe place, especially for our children and our students. And we are doing everything in our power that we know of to make this a safe place. And then if, Again, heaven forbid something were to ever happen of this nature. We should be prepared to address it and handle it in the right way. And that's why after reading these stories of of, of other churches where these types of things have have happened, now for several months our, our pastoral team has been working on a response plan to abuse so that we would be ready if 
an event like this were ever to take place. Hopefully that's a plan that we never need to use. But we need to be ready to respond if that time comes. You know, sometimes the proper response includes contacting authorities outside of the church. But sometimes, I'm afraid churches are afraid to do that. The, the, the churches feel like, okay, you know, we have to, we have to kind of close in the ranks here. We, we, have to, we have to protect our reputation. You know, what if people found out that this took place, that this kind of thing happened here? But that is utter nonsense. I love what Russ Moore said about that. Jesus never tells us to protect his church by covering up sin. No, we should deal with sin. We should expose sin. And when it's of a criminal nature, it's our duty to report sin so that we make sure that no other innocent people get hurt. If all the stories we have seen over the last few years have taught us anything, it's that all that needs to happen for an evil person to hurt more people is for good people to do nothing about it. So one more character we need to learn from in this story, and that's David's other son, Absalom. After Absalom finds out what his brother did to his sister, we're told that he keeps his feelings to himself. He hated Amnon, but he, he doesn't say anything good or bad to him. He, he, he wears his, his feelings close to the vest. But all along he was seething on the inside and he was planning and plotting his revenge for two full years. Let's read the rest of the story, starting in verse 23. It came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And Absalom fled, and the young men who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the roads on the hillsides behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. And so it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept, and the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. 
King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. We've looked at Amnon and Tamar and David, but last of all, let's spend a moment considering Absalom. And Absalom teaches us that we should not harbor bitterness towards those who have hurt us, but instead we should bring everything to the Lord. As one person put it, Absalom's hatred was a sophisticated hatred. It was a high-class hatred, a hatred that could wait. And for two full years, he plotted and he planned his revenge. And then the day came when he was going to shear his sheep. And in that culture, sheep shearing was, was an event to be celebrated. It was happening 12 miles from Jerusalem. And so Absalom asked his father, the king, to come and be a part of the celebration, probably knowing that his father would decline. But asking him first would lower the suspicions. And so after David declined, he said, well, if you can't come, then let the crown prince come. Let your oldest son Amnon come and all the rest of my brothers. You can tell that David is a little suspicious of that and he should have trusted his instincts. But after Absalom urges him, he eventually lets Amnon and his brothers go. Verse 28 tells us that Absalom already had the trap ready. He had already told his servants once Amnon gets there, once he's good and drunk, then I want you to rise up and I want you to kill him. And, and we're meant to see, this is intentional, we're meant to see the parallel between what Absalom is doing here to Amnon and what David, his father, had done to Uriah. Remember David first tried to get Uriah drunk. And when that didn't work, he ordered his servants to kill him. Well, Absalom's plan just lumps all that together in one. This is the sins of the father continuing with his sons. In verse 29, Absalom's servants do exactly as they are told. They rise up and they strike Amnon, their, his brother, down. And all the other sons of the king flee, but this false rumor reaches the king that all of his sons have been killed until this same snake in the grass, Jonadab, happens to be standing there, the same one who gave the plan to Amnon to how he could be alone with his sister Tamar. He speaks up and he says, King, don't think that all your sons have been killed. Only one, only Amnon has. And, and then notice what he says at the end of verse 32. He says, For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. In other words, your son Absalom has been planning to do this two years. And you know, as we think about the different characters in this story, again, maybe at some point in your past you have been a Tamar. But is it possible that now you're in danger of becoming an Absalom? Because for years now, you've been nursing feelings of bitterness, feelings of revenge towards the person who hurt you at some point in your past. And this story shows us what a dangerous road that is to walk. And we've already talked about how there are actions that we need to take when we've been hurt, especially of a criminal nature. There's people we need to tell, things we need to do. But spiritually, we do need to reach a point where we take that step of forgiving the one who has wronged us and hurt us. And maybe you hear that and you think, how? I mean, how, how could I possibly do that? And first of all, that person does not deserve to be forgiven. And, and, and you're right about that, actually. 
The person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. N- none of us deserve to be forgiven. What we deserve is, is justice. But I want to share with you a couple reasons why you and I have to take that step of forgiveness. First of all, we have to take it because our bitterness does not actually hurt the person that we're angry with. Our bitterness is like a poison in our own hearts that actually destroys us. And God wants to extract that poison from us. He wants to set us free from a cage of bitterness and unforgiveness that maybe you have been living in for years and it is keeping you from moving forward in your walk with Christ. But also we need to forgive because the Bible tells us in Ephesians that in spite of all of our sin, God in Christ has forgiven us. He calls us to forgive and he calls us to give those feelings of revenge in our heart over to him because vengeance does not belong to us. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. If you've been a Tamar, if someone has hurt you at some point in your past, you cannot actually help that. That was something that someone did to you. But you have a choice of whether or not you walk down the road of Absalom. That is a decision that each of us needs to make. The last few verses of this chapter tell us that after Absalom kills his brother, he flees, he runs away to a kingdom outside the borders of Israel. After some time, David begins to miss his son Absalom, but at this point he takes no action to get him back. And next week, as we pick up this story, we're going to see what happens when Absalom finally does come back home. You know, earlier this week, I was, I was reading a story of, of a young uh, woman who, like, like Tamar, was a, uh, a victim of, of rape. And I heard about this, this young woman who, after that had happened in her life, many times she would, she would get into the shower and she would take a, a scouring pad, something that was used to clean dishes, and she would take that and she would scrub her body as if, if she scrubbed hard enough and if she scrubbed deeply enough that she'd be able to, to take away the shame and take away the guilt of what had happened in her life. But it was powerful to read that after this young woman was introduced to the love of, of Jesus, she threw those scouring pads away. And she knew she didn't need them anymore because Jesus had cleansed her and, and washed her. You know, you know, oftentimes victims of abuse, they have the same question that, Am, that Tamar asked of Amnon in verse 13. Where can I take my shame? You know, I think oftentimes, even, even if, if up here in, in your mind, you know that there shouldn't really be shame because you did not do this, right? Someone did something to you. And yet sometimes our heart has trouble believing that. We still have shame and we still deal with with guilt over what happened in our life, over what we are a part of. And we ask that same question Tamar asked, where can I take my shame? Friend, I hope you hear you can take your shame to the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to pay for our sin and to take away our guilt. He also died in the most shameful way possible to take away our shame. 
And when we come to know him as our Savior, he takes off that clothing that is soiled with our sin and our guilt and our shame, and he replaces it, and he covers us with a garment that is clean and white, that is his perfect goodness and righteousness. In just a minute, I want to ask you if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior to come and do that this morning. But right now, I want to ask you if you would bow your heads with me. And I just want to take a minute and I want to, I want to pray for you. And I especially want to pray for anyone in this room who has been a victim of, of sexual or emotional or physical abuse. And, and I promise you, I am not going to embarrass anyone in this room. But right now, with every single head bowed and every eye closed, if you're someone who would say, Pastor, at some point in my life, one of those things happened to me. In some form, in some fashion, I have been abused and I just, I want you to pray for me. If that's you and if you would have the courage to do that, again, with no one looking around, I just want to ask you just, would you just slip up your hand so just I can see it and put it right back down. Pray for you. Father, you see these hands. Father, hands going up all over this room. You know every story. You know every wound. Your word says you have every tear in your bottle. Father, I pray today that you would give grace to these. Father, you give them courage in some cases to know what they need to do, to know what steps they need to take. Father, for others, that you would just meet them with your just continued healing in their life. Even though the scars will remain, Father, they would see your grace and your strength holding up their arms. That you do have a good purpose and a good plan for them to use them. Father, I pray they would feel your love. They would know today that they are a child of yours, covered in the blood of Jesus, your Son, with heaven as their eternal home if they know your son, Jesus. Father, I lift them up to you. I pray you would enable them to bring every pain and every hurt to the cross. I pray for those struggling with feelings of bitterness and unforgiveness, and I pray, God, that you would give them the supernatural ability to forgive as they have been forgiven in Christ. Father, that they might be able, some in this room for the first time in years, to, to move forward in their walk with you. To not be held back by what has happened to them in the past, but to be able to move ahead to what you have for them in the future. To walk out of the shadows and into the sunlight of your grace. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. And God's people said, amen.